Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast. For this edition of the podcast, we're going to be talking about contracts. We have our special guest with us, Kyle Clausen, who is the CEO of Resolve. Kyle, do you want to introduce yourself briefly? Yeah, thanks. Um, I'm Kyle. I'm the CEO of Resolve. Uh, Resolve, if you guys don't know uh, anything about us, we work with physicians across the country, uh, all 50 states, all specialties, and help them advocate and negotiate their contracts and make sure they have uh, a good idea of what's fair in a contract, not only from compensation, but but other items as well. And so I'm happy to be here and happy to have the conversation with you guys. Great. And um, to introduce myself and my co-hosts, obviously, I'm David Warho. I am a cardiac intensivist at Rady Children's Hospital in UC San Diego. And with us today, we have Jill Zender and Sadie Rodriguez. Do you want to introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Jill Zender. I'm a nurse practitioner in the cardiac ICU at UT Southwestern Children's Health in Dallas, Texas. Hi, my name is Sadie Rodriguez. I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta Emory University. Well, let's go ahead and dive in. Um, Kyle, why don't you tell us a little bit about what Resolve does um, when some somebody reaches out to you? Sure. Most of our users are coming to us to get help with their contract, either because they don't know anything right about contracts and what you know, kind of a baseline should look like, or because they've had a bad experience in the past. Uh, they've gotten burned on a contract. They've had colleagues that have warned them about red flags and things like that. And what we find is in medical professions, there's not a lot of training on the business of medicine and what your value is and what you know you're supposed to be looking for. And so, you know, our our first step in our process is one, trying to get them as much information uh, as we can about what's normal and what's not normal. And then also trying to find out from them what their situation is like so we can uh, you know, customize uh, recommendations for them. Just like every patient's a little bit different, every, every client for us is a little bit different uh, on what they're prioritizing. And so you know, that's for us, step one is education, making sure that uh, there's some transparency into the market of what's normal and what's not. Thanks. And along those lines, I guess um, a lot of us have sort of been raised in the world of academic medicine, where we kind of feel like everything is a little bit cookie cutter and there's maybe not a lot of variability, but I'm sensing from how you just answered that first question that there may be more variability than we are aware of. Can you talk about sort of what you see in contracts? Um, You know, what's different between private practice contracts and academic medicine contracts? And is there a lot of variability in what you see with clients that come to you? Yeah, it's it's a great question and it's a great lead into the the standard line, right? Is that every contract is standard, right? You can't you can't change this. Everybody signed the same thing. Uh, from where we sit, that's that's not a, a true statement. You know, we have the privilege of of seeing thousands of contracts a year and a lot of them from the same employers, you know, over and over. And so we often see academic centers and large health systems and small private practices um, making adjustments. There's not a uh, a blanket statement that I think works, um, you know, how much flexibility they're going to have probably varies, right? I think some of the smaller practices uh, and, you know, institutions that have a harder time recruiting are willing to make more changes than others, but it's usually a function of supply and demand. And it's a, a function of supply and demand at the time that you're looking, which is what what makes it uh, even more important to just understand what's fair and to make sure you're always asking because they may not have made a change for the last person that came in, but that might've been three years ago, right? And the market's different now than it was then, right? And so um, without without knowing what you should be looking for and without 
understanding that you should be empowered, right, to, to make those requests. Uh, I think that's where a lot of, uh, you know, physicians leave themselves short. I'm curious from a data standpoint, like, so you see people from across the nation, regionally, institutions, different settings, as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. how do you know, like what databases do you use to know what's normal for the market at large versus what should be expected for a certain market? Or is there a way to know that? Yeah, there, there is. So there's, there's a variety of large surveys, right. That are out there. So you guys have probably heard the acronyms MGMA or Sullivan Cotter or you know, a double AMC, there's a, there's a lot of different surveys that are out there. I think all those are good. We utilize MGMA as part of our review uh, and taking a look at that. Uh, we also have, again, the benefit of seeing thousands of documents. And so we have our own data that we can look at that I think is, you know, as valuable uh, as any other source because it's it's more live, right? It's not, it's not dated information. Uh, we can also go specifically down to an employer if we've worked with them before to know, right, what they've done or what they haven't done or even to the city level. And a lot of the, the larger surveys don't allow you to do that. They they will, you know, data is only as good as what's coming in, right? And so at some point, um, you know, a sample size of one is not something that they feel comfortable publishing. It's something that we do feel comfortable publishing. And so, um, you know, that's that's where I think there's a distinction on on what we're looking at. What is the process of um, getting resolve involved in contract negotiation? Uh, like when when should employees start reaching out? Yeah, great question. I mean, you know, when you're looking at offers uh, and you're starting to, you know, review letters of intent or memorandums of understanding, you know, all those kind of initial documents that you might see, uh, a lot of times people think that they can sign those and then come back later and negotiate a contract. And from where we sit, it's very difficult to change some of those items if you've already verbally agreed, even if it's legally not binding. You know, there's there's some human interaction there and some dynamics that makes it hard to to change those things once you signed off on it. So. We, we think the earlier, the better. Uh, I think even before you get into the interview process to have information and to know what you should be expecting is important because in the interview, they may ask you, what do you, what do you think is fair compensation? If you have no idea what it should be for that region, it's a very hard question to answer. Um, and so I think earlier, the better, right? Uh, but certainly when you're at the LOI stage or, or a term sheet stage, that would be you know kind of a mandate on my end of saying, hey, you should have somebody help you with that to make sure you're you're knowing what your value is before you move to the next step. That's a really good point. I didn't think about like pre-gaming with you. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. I, to, to your point, like conversations naturally happen or follow-up conversations or even like the initial like feeling out of people. And so or do you usually, if if someone comes to you early enough, are those things that you will set some time and like helping them prepare for some of those, you know, conversations that might happen in anticipation, even though they haven't happened yet? Yeah, absolutely. So we we definitely have the uh, the most prepared clients come to us before they have anything in hand, right? It's they're getting ready to go interview or they've got three or four lined up uh, and they want to know just how to strategically position themselves on evaluating their, their offers because they assume, right, that they're going to have a few offers that come in and they usually do. It's hard to say yes or no to anything, right? Until you see an entire package, because they could say, "Here's the base," and do you feel comfortable with that? The answer is, you know, yes if everything else is okay, maybe, or it's no if my health insurance stinks, or there's a huge non-compete you're putting on me, or there's no tail coverage. I mean, all those things have value, and so I think before you can adequately answer whether or not you're happy with an offer, you need to see most of the details before you can get there. And so I think that's where, again, having some baseline for what you should be expecting and what's normal, what's not is really helpful pre-gaming to use your term. 
Uh, and along those lines, um, how about if you've already, you know, all of us here are already working jobs for, you know, months to many, many years, and obviously things come up for for renewal, and we don't really feel like we're really empowered to make any changes. Do you work with clients who um, who are able to negotiate? once they're already comfortably in a position and have been there for a while, or is it sort of the horses out of the barn at that point? Yeah, no, all the time. We have, we have a lot of clients that want to renegotiate. And, you know, in the last three years, right, or four years, I mean, it's a, it's a great example of how healthcare has been changing and how there've been some dramatic things, right, with COVID and with furloughs happening and with compensation rates being changed and, uh, you know, fee schedules being changed where we've seen employers come in with amendments halfway through a contract, right? So if you're in a three-year contract and a year and a half in reimbursements change for them, they're going to come with an amendment that says, hey, sorry, we can't pay you at this rate anymore. Um, if it's good for them, it ought to be good for you too, right? If, if the data supports an adjustment and fair market value changes halfway through, you know, there's really no reason in my mind that you shouldn't be asking for that adjustment at that time. Um, we see a lot of clients, especially clients in their first contract, right? Where they sign something out of training thinking, wow, right? I just got a pretty big pay increase from what I was making as a resident or a fellow, uh, only to realize that it was still not at the median or still not close to what they should be making. And so um, I, I do think evaluating comp uh, on least, at least an annual basis, if not just actively is really important because things change, reimbursements change, surveys come out at different times. And so that's what they're utilizing for compliance in their contract. A lot of your contracts might reference some of these surveys might say we can't pay you past a certain rate of MGMA. You know, it has to it has to cut both ways in my mind. If it's good for them, it's got to be good for you. And I think you should always be actively reviewing your contract and making sure you're being paid fairly. That's a good point. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit um, to like the non-financial pieces. It's probably more pertinent to academic settings, but things like, you know, startup funds or seed yeah. money for research or um, other sort of non like financial things, but that help you in your career development um, or career goals. Yeah, we spent a lot of time uh, initially here talking about money, but that's actually not probably the most important thing to the the clients that we talk to. It's almost always the you know the softer things about. Uh, if you're in academics, you know, how much time do I have for research or teaching um, or do I have those funds, right, or dedicated time to, to pursue my interests? How is intellectual property, if I'm creating that, going to be shared with the institution? You know, all of those points are what I think is, is fun about talking to every single client because everybody has different goals, right? Some people are there just to produce and they want volume and they want to go home, right? And that's that's it. And some people want to really be on the research side of it. So, I think in an academic setting, especially allocation of time is one of the, the highest priorities we see titles, right? And advancement opportunities are also important, right? For building the CV. And especially if you plan on, you know, maybe moving on, you know, in five to, to 10 years of something else, you know, just planning your career uh, is important and maybe more important than the money initially. Um, and so I, I do think regardless of your academics or even outside of academics, quality of life has become more and more important to most physicians. Um, and so, you know, whether it's schedule, whether it's call, whether it's, you know, type of shifts you're working day, night, that type of thing, having as much clarity in the contract as possible should help both sides be happy long-term and should prevent, you know, some burnout, hopefully should prevent you from having to leave, which is good for the institution too, because they don't have to recruit somebody else. So I think having those clear expectations up front is really one of the goals on clarifying the duties and responsibilities and what that time allocation is going to look like, because it, it should set you up for success uh, if you do it right. Why don't we take a moment to acknowledge our sponsor, Resolve. 
Have you been told this contract is standard? Everyone signs the same one. Have you been letting your contract renew for years and never getting a pay increase? Are you about to sign your first offer and have no idea where to start or what to look for in a contract? Resolve is here to help. They believe the first step in setting yourself up for success can be found by changing the way you sign employment contracts. Physicians have never settled for being average or standard, so why accept a standard contract? Resolve can help you determine if a contract is fair, and if it's not, they provide the data and expertise necessary to successfully negotiate changes. Resolve has partnered with PCICS to offer the education, data, and expertise physicians need to know where their new or existing contracts stand and negotiate the necessary changes. Each physician has their own needs, unique to their lifestyle, and that's why Resolve takes a tailored approach with each client. Whether competitive compensation, adequate benefits, or call schedule is at the top of your list, the team at Resolve is here to get you the terms that matter most. Find out more at PCICS.org and navigate to the industry sponsors page. You can also go to Resolve.com and use the code PCICS5 to get a discount on your contract review. So one topic that comes up quite frequently nowadays is equity in pay between male and female physicians and between physicians of different races. Can you uh, give us a little bit of your experience with how Resolve has been able to navigate these things? And um, do you think that involving Resolve in your contract negotiations can actually help with equity? I hope so. Uh, we we are here to do that, right? We're hoping to make sure that the the contracts are fair for everyone, right? Regardless of all the factors you just mentioned. And so we certainly have seen, you know, again because of the the volumes that we see, we we've seen contracts from the same employer for male and female have signing bonus amounts that are different, right? Same specialty, roughly the same time. You know, we never have probably full information, so we don't know if they both started the same, right? And and the male asked for it and the female didn't. But, you know, when you see discrepancies of, you know, a $25,000 signing bonus in one and nothing in the other, it certainly makes you wonder, right, if there's, you know, active discrimination going on or not. We also have seen contracts come back and, and everybody has different levels of electronic capabilities and how good they are with their documents. But we've seen some that they have forgot to take out certain edits, right, where they're internally referencing thing like this is a female contract in parentheses. And so are there maybe valid reasons like you could put maternity leave in uh, a female contract and not in a male? Sure, maybe, but we didn't see any maternity leave in there. And so it's those are the things that make you kind of grimace and go, geez, you know, you you wish that this wasn't happening, Um, but it is. And so when we look at data, and when we look at the contracts in our system, we're not worried about any factors other than if you're being you know, treated appropriately for your situation, right? Um, and so we advocate for everyone, right, the same way. Uh, we, we do think that having access to some of that in, inside information is really helpful. And, you know, certainly there's been a lot of reports out there about how that discrimination, you know, it's well documented. I think it's, you know, 80 some thousand a year, right, is what the average difference is between male and female, assuming all factors are, are equal. Uh, obviously, that's not not right, not something that we would uh, you know, agree with. And we hope that everybody feels comfortable pushing and asking for things that, that they should. And so that's, that's, I think, the benefit of knowing what your worth is, because I think it's historically, it's been difficult to know, right? You don't know if you're being underpaid. Uh, and so that's one of the things that we feel really strongly about is putting that information out there so you can see what a normal non-compete looks like and what a normal tail coverage looks like and what normal compensation looks like so you can know whether or not 
you are being discriminated against or if it's just, you know, the market's different, right? Denver is different than the middle of Iowa and New York City is different than Georgia. And so, you know, there are some discrepancies that are just geographic in nature, um, but there are some that are not, right? It's just you're in the same town, same position. Uh, and so there there's really shouldn't be differences in those situations. So then in those situations, do you just tell your client, like just fully transparent, listen for this exact same market. This is what the benchmark is despite gender or or maybe in spite of gender and or whatever other maybe situation they may have, early career or I don't, et cetera. I guess you could even think of non-financial situations that might approach themselves in inequitable. Somebody comes from a different program or institution that didn't have the same amount of um, mentoring opportunities or et cetera. Right. And you just tell them, Right, you know, through your consultation, like this is what you need to be asking for, and this is why, or how does yeah. that work? Yeah, we we think that it's really important to do every negotiation in good faith, right? I mean, we we don't think that you should be telling the employers that they should be paying you 90th percentile, right? If you don't have any volume to support that. So I, you know, we we want to come in saying, okay, hey, look, for this area, right? This is what we think is is standard, right, and what's reasonable, uh, and the data supports it. Now you can disagree about data. There's a lot of different data points out there. So there's nothing, there's no perfect number. And we understand that too. Um, and there's no perfect terms, but <clears throat> when we know what the market looks like and should look like, it's a lot easier to say, Hey, you should feel comfortable advocating for this number and, and feel okay asking for this number or this term, right? We're focused on numbers again here, but it could be that the last five non-competes we saw in Chicago are 10 miles, this one's 20, right? I mean, why why is this one 20? That doesn't make any sense. And so, you know, we don't sort the data and MGMA doesn't sort the data, you know, based on, you know, any factors other than region and geography. So it doesn't, I mean, there are years of experience that matter, right? But as far as male, female, right? Uh, You know, race, things like that, the data is not being quantified that way. And so, there's no reason for you know any of that discrimination to happen. My next question is about so maybe cardiac intensivists can be confrontational, and maybe I'm just the one who doesn't like conflict. <laughs> but how much of a role does resolve play in the actual negotiation process? Like, are the the employers or potential employers aware that resolve is even involved, or is this all on the physician or the employee to negotiate without mentioning that they have like this additional help it's on their really side? A great question. Yeah, pediatrics. You guys are really the tough, hard nosed specialty. Um, <laughs> All the subspecialties. Um, no, I, it, it's about 50-50. It's really personal preference, you know, and there's some personalities that are involved, you know, with that. But we, we certainly are available, right? The, the attorney that you're going to work with is available to have that negotiation and to have the conversations for you if you're uncomfortable with that. Um, sometimes that's much easier and more efficient just because of schedules. You guys are working, right? And there's, there's business time to make that happen. Um, sometimes... The, the clients, right? You guys, the physicians, uh, they want to handle those communications themselves because maybe one, they've been at the institution for a while. They have some relationships, right? That they don't want to burn necessarily. Uh, or two, they just want to know how they're going to be treated. And I think that that's important too, is, you know, if they, if they treat you poorly in a negotiation, that might be a good window into how the employment's going to go down the road. And so certainly if you're joining a private practice, 
you know, we always encourage you to have some of that communication. You don't have to have all of it, but we think it's important to know how your partners are going to interact with you. Uh, if you're in a larger system where it's an administrator that may not even be there two years from now, uh, I think it's less important in those situations, but they will have a, a legal team and advisors on their side. And so I don't think you should be worried about having somebody in your corner uh, and feel like that's doing something wrong. And as a follow-up to that, have you found different results or different degrees of effectiveness between a physician or someone advocating for themselves versus having an attorney from Resolve doing some of that work? Or is it just dependent on the person again? Well, it's heavily dependent on the person. I think if if the, the clients of you, right, are comfortable making all the same requests we are and, and comfortable telling them that you think things maybe aren't fair, then I think you can potentially have the same results, right? But most of our clients and most physicians don't necessarily feel great about having a negotiation done by themselves personally. And so I think, you know, a lot of times it does benefit you to insert a third party, even just for the fact of it gives you time to, to think, right, about the response. If they so- say something in the conversation, you then have time to say, well, I need to go back to my client and ask them, right? I can't say yes or no to anything on the phone for you because you're the client. You make the decisions, not me. And so it gives you some time to think and process those things where you're not in the heat of the moment having a conversation. So I think it is beneficial to have somebody help you out. But I also think there's a lot of clients that do it themselves and get great results. So it's really, you know, it's really personality uh, and kind of case specific. Uh, What is Resolve's role in, I guess, kind of contract education, Um, say it's someone's first contract and they're kind of dead set on a base salary that they feel that they should be making, but potentially there are other benefits in the contract that perhaps they don't see or understand is does resolve kind of work solely to kind to negotiate based on what the client wants, or is there um, more education kind of behind the scenes of, I guess, pointing out the other benefits as well, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think, I think it's a two-pronged question. Um, we certainly educate and, and try to answer any and all questions that anybody has right on the document. So even if they come to us and say, hey, look, I'm signing this, right? No matter what, this is the job I have to have. I just want to make sure that I know what I'm signing. You know, th- that's a, a small subset, right, of the people. Um, or if they say, hey, I have to have this number, we might come in in that situation and say, well, that's you know maybe not in line with the market. If you have other offers or something that would support asking for that number, we certainly would encourage you to do it. But you may be better off you know reducing that ask here, right, and focusing on the other areas where the contract is short, where you know maybe there's no signing bonus and you should have one, or maybe there's no tail coverage and you should have that, you know, instead. And so we certainly will try to encourage everybody again to kind of go through that good faith negotiation process and make sure that there's data to support what they're asking for. But that being said, I mean, there, there are certain times where it's just you've got two or three good offers. And, and even though, right, the data may say a signing bonus median is 20000 for your specialty, if somebody's going to offer you 100000 right, I mean, that's that's the data point. And I, I know that sounds ridiculous, maybe, but we see signing bonuses that are extremely high in some locations. And so it's it's one of those things where you've got to react to what the client has in front of them uh, and compare it with all the information we've got to help them make a good decision. Um, so I had a question about, we've talked a lot about physician contract in negotiation. Um, is there any role for, um, trainees or, uh, nurse practitioners, nurses? Um, is there any room for negotiation and contracts for other specialties in the field? Yeah. So we, we do work with APPs. So nurse practitioners, physician assistants, um, you know, they, they'll get contracts that are sometimes similar in form to a physician, even though, 
right? Roles are different and, uh, you know, compensation is different and things like that. Uh, but we do work with, with them, uh, nurses or, or trainees, not, not so much, um, you know, uh, people going into residency contracts and things like that. Those are all very, very standard. So we don't, we don't think it's, it's honestly worth to spend, uh, on your guys's part to, to have those reviewed, but, but certainly the, you know, the APPs we do, uh, help out on that as well. CRNAs, you know, et cetera. Awesome. That's good to know. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. You had mentioned in the very beginning um, red flags, and I was just wondering if you had any like big pearls of wisdom or big pitfalls, um, sort of maybe broad strokes that people could walk away with. Just, you know, maybe they're not up for renegotiation now or contract now, but remote from now, something that they can sort of easily remember. Yeah. I think the one thing I'd tell you is that a lot, a lot of people think that they'll sign a, a contract maybe that has a three-year term on it, right? So they think that they're in this three-year time frame where they can't renegotiate anything uh, or they're stuck for three years. Um, you need to try to give yourself some leverage, right, for down the road because you're never probably going to do it right perfectly the first time you're, you're coming out. You're going to learn about the organization. You're going to find out what works well there and what doesn't work well there. Um, and so most contracts will have what's called termination without cause in them, where you can terminate on a certain amount of notice, which also gives you your effective kind of renegotiation time frame to say, hey, I'd like to have this change done or else I'm going to go look somewhere else. Um, if you don't have that ability, right? So if you don't have the ability to walk away, you're losing leverage because if you want to leave early, right, you're going to be in breach of contract and there's damages there. So that, that would be a problem. And then the other thing is that if you have a, a non-compete and some states don't allow them, but most states do, if there's a non-compete that says you can't practice within 10 or 15 miles and that's where your spouse is, that's where your family is, whatever the situation, you can't leave town, you know, you're really putting handcuffs around yourself for how hard you're probably going to be willing to push for those changes in the future, whether it's compensation or schedule change or a title change. Um, if you don't feel like you have an option to bounce to, what we find is that clients are really, really hesitant. They'd be really mad, right, about the situation, but they won't actually act on it because they don't have that landing spot. So I think even if you miss on everything, right, you can miss on the comp, you can miss on the call, you can miss on all that stuff. If you miss on the, the way to get out of the contract and if you miss on liquidated damages, right, or a payment that you might have to make to them if you leave early or if you miss on the non-compete, I mean, those are the things that really cause life to stink, right, if you're unhappy. And so I would... I would encourage people to focus on, if nothing else, focus on how the relationship might end in the future uh, and then maybe work backwards from there into everything else that matters. It actually makes a lot of sense. I never would have thought about the end at the beginning, but that's a great uh, yeah. strategy. Family law always says you plan the divorce with the marriage, right? And that's um, <laughs> that's our uh, kind of analogy for, for contract law. I guess um, one thing that you know I have been thinking about throughout this conversation is what are the biggest downsides or surprises have you seen where somebody comes to resolve with a contract that they ultimately really want to work out and they go back with whatever advice um, or benchmark data that they need to negotiate and then the employer either pulls the contract or, or says no? Has anything surprising like that ever happened or is that pretty yeah. uncommon? Yeah. No, well, it's, it's really uncommon, but it has happened. You know, when you do this for as long as we've been doing it, you know, 13 plus years, uh, it's kind of like medicine. There's always the outliers, right? And so I, I think when those types of things happen, and it'll happen, I don't know, 10 times a year, um, where, uh, you know, a, a client will say, okay, here's, here's what I'm asking for. They go back and the, the employer will pull the offer, for example. I, I view that as almost 
a saving grace, right? If they're going to pull the offer on a request and you've made everything in good faith, you're not asking for anything that's crazy or out of line. Um, I think that's probably a, a sign that you weren't supposed to be there and they're probably not a great employer anyway. Um, now, there are some situations where clients don't do themselves any favors either, right? If they've negotiated 10 times and they keep coming back asking for the same thing over and over again, and then they bring us in for the 11th round, that's that's not a good position for us to be in. That's not a good position for you to be in. And that's why I think to the earlier question about starting early, you know, you don't, you don't want to go through 10 rounds of negotiation. You want to go through one or two, right? And at that point, you should be saying yes or no, you know, to what they're, what they're presenting. So yeah, crazy things happen. I mean, with crazy things happen on the, the other side of it too. And it's, it's the hard part is you never know. We can't control where employers start, right? And so if they start in a really bad position, sometimes the, the increases are dramatic. I mean, we had a, a client last week that had an increase of, you know, 57% in comp. You know, they started them at 350 and then fin- finished at 550. And that's nothing. I mean, I'd love to take credit for that, but that, that has nothing to do with me. That has to do with they started way too low, right? And so, but without knowing that, right? I mean, 350 when you're coming out of training sounds like a lot and it is a lot. And so I think that's, that's the, again, we keep parking on fair market value and knowing what you're worth, but that's why you have to know. Wow, that's absolutely insane. I mean, I guess that that brings to, to brings me to the other part of that question is, what are the biggest surprises that you've seen, or maybe you're not surprised anymore because you've been doing this for so long? But maybe what are the biggest surprises that your clients have seen? Like, wow, I never thought that they would budge on this or that. Or yeah, well, that that one from last week certainly is is up there. You know, one of the other ones, which is again this year, not not you know, this month type of thing. But uh, earlier this year, we had a physician that was joining a private practice and that practice got bought out prior to them joining. And the the sticky part was, is that in the contract, we helped negotiate kind of this mandated, right, offer of partnership if they got bought out. And they did, at that point in time, they didn't think that was going to happen. And so she she basically became an equal partner in this buyout before she even started working there. And then the PE company didn't, right. Didn't want that to be the case. And so they had to work on buying her out before she even started. And it was a, a high six figure number. Right. And so, you know, that, that type of thing is crazy. We've also had, you know, kind of crazy bad situations on the other end of it where people have started and been fired before they've started. Right. Because again, there's been a buyout and, there's in this contract with, you know, potential non-competes and they're coming to us going, what do I do? Right. I was supposed to start in a week. And now this, you know, the, the, the senior partners came to me and said, you know, we've sold the practice. We've had, I mean, we've, we've had people that have joined groups that have thought they're going to work in one town, right. Let's say a city like Minneapolis or, you know, St. Louis that has some surrounding satellite locations. Um, and all of a sudden they realized that, you know, in their contract, they didn't take a look at it close enough and they're, they're working three days a week, an hour away because they, they signed off on it. I mean, all of these things are, you know, I'm not surprised anymore really at anything, right. That, that happens. Um, but I'm also a little bit surprised on just the, some of the mentality from employers and the, and the lack of, I don't know if it's empathy or lack of maybe respect for, you know, the physicians uh, and the, the APPs, you know, that, that they're working with. I mean, you guys drive all of the revenue for them, right? Without you guys, they can't bill anything. And so it, it's always shocking to me at, uh, you know, maybe the the lack of fairness, the lack of equity that's, that's there um, and the kind of the big business and machine that it's become. Along those lines, can you tell us 
how far do Resolve's services extend as far as like if you've helped negotiate a contract and then, you know, you know, close that book and that physician comes back to you and says, hey, they were bought out. You you continue to help until the start date or or is there a statute of limitations? How does that work? Uh, yeah, so we we have various levels of service, right? And, and from free tools to people that want, you know, kind of ongoing annual support. Uh, you know, from us or people that just want data and information, they want to do it all on their own. And so depending on the level of service you're in, um, you know, we'll, we'll dictate that. But most of our clients will, you know, utilize us through the contract to the start dates, you know, and a lot of times for, you know, kind of 12 months uh, total until they've gotten into the contract and they make sure it's, it's going okay. Um, and then they'll, they'll continue on and kind of just a monitoring status, right? Um, making sure that they know that they're being paid fairly and that situations haven't changed. But, you know, the nice thing is, is you can always come back anytime, right? If if situation arises, it's easy to hop back on and talk to the same person you talked to, right? Eight, 12 months ago on your contract and they're familiar with the situation. So, you know, again, it depends on kind of needs of the, of the client individual. Throughout the pandemic, there's other reasons that we've had staffing shortages, just the burden of healthcare. But I think that a lot of organizations have had great probably resource losses, financial losses in their staff loss. And I'm just wondering if that has impacted at all the way that organizations see the hiring process. Like, does it make them even want to try to run more, you know, resource light because they're anticipating so much turnover? Or do you think that there could ever be a shift in their perspective that, hey, maybe if we start off by really valuing these providers and investing in their career development, that we can have a greater return on investment, a lower turnover, and in the end, save ourselves some money? No, I think it's a great question. I think it's a really high level, right? Macro level type question. When you look at, I think there's a lot of money in healthcare, put it that way. And I think there are lots of ways to save costs that don't come at the expense of what you're doing with your physicians or with your APPs. And so, you know, if GDP, you know, healthcare is like 17% of GDP and physician spend is not (laughs) anywhere near all of that. So I think having organizations that are, you know, have physicians in leadership is a good starting point, right? If you can have a CEO of a system that is a, a physician, I think that that helps. Uh, I think the model will have to change. So we, we've had a lot of burnout. We've had a lot of people leaving the systems. Uh, that's not necessarily from COVID. I mean, that's been happening, I think, even prior to COVID, you know, with all of the EHR changes and, you know, the documentation requirements now and all of those things are adding to the burdens that we're placing on physicians on top of the fact that we're asking them to produce, right? We still want them to generate RVUs and, you know, cover, um, you know, collections depending on the model. So I, I think, um, you know, the long and the short of it is locum coverage is expensive. So if you're going to try to go lean on your staffing and then you have somebody leave, you know, you're going to pay a locum provider, you know, one and a half times what you pay a full-time staff person and it's expensive to recruit. Everybody knows that. So I think if if they're having a good long-term strategic plan, right, for their physicians, it would behoove organizations to treat them well, or at least to treat them fairly and to make sure that they're close to at fair market value and to make accommodations because not every physician is the same, right? So having blanket standard contracts, I don't think is the answer. I don't think unionization is the answer by physicians. I think it's a, everybody has different things that they want, you know, uh, a new young mother who's a physician may want to work three or four days a week. And somebody who is the sole income earner may want to work five days a week or six days a week and, and, you know, go crazy. I think both of those are fair options and they should be allowed to do both of those. Right. And so, 
I, I think there's a solution, but I think we're a long way from it. And I think until then, everybody's going to have to uh, decide to, uh, you know, empower themselves and to advocate for what they want individually. Uh, and if they don't get it from their employer to find one, they'll give it to them. Thank you, Kyle. Is there anything else that you think we should know about that we didn't ask about? So, I mean, I guess I would just say, you know, anything that you don't know, right. And, and there's, there's a lot, right. All of us, you know, are experts in certain things. I think it's just make sure you get the information, right. Whether it's from us or anybody else. I mean, we, we think being educated and being empowered is, is really important. And so, you know, encourage all your listeners to, to go out and find that information if they don't have it. Thank you so much, Kyle, for taking the time to speak to us and to speak to our PCICS membership. I learned a lot. I, I know that I was very surprised by a lot of the stuff that you had to say. So we really appreciate having you on. It was my pleasure. I appreciate you guys having me on. And to all our listeners, thank you for joining us on the PCICS podcast, the go-to podcast for pediatric cardiac critical care and the official podcast of the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And visit our website, PCICS.org, where you can find more information about how to become a member and enjoy updated info on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and see all of our sponsor web pages, which again, this would not have been possible without all of our supporters. The song I Don't Know by Grapes was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license.